Uh, we've got a very special show for you all today. Uh, the boys are back in town. Here we are. Ryan Grimm here in studio, filling in for Brianna, who's out sick. And then Kim Iverson will, of course, join us later in the show. Great to see you again, Ryan. Happy to fill in on la last minute. I am wildly unprepared. Just going to wing it today. <laughs> wildly unprepared, and yet he's going to know more about these subjects <laughs> than I do. So, <laughs> so what are we talking about? Well, we got a lot, uh, according to the teleprompter. So, uh, <laughs> Law and Crimes' Adam Classfield will join us to break down the latest in Twitter's lawsuit against Elon Musk. The Hill's Raphael Bernal will weigh in on the fallout from the, those racist blog posts targeting Texas Representative Maya Flores. But first. At least 17 Democratic lawmakers were arrested protesting abortion rights outside the Supreme Court. Yesterday, they marched from the Capitol to the court and, according to CNN, were ordered there to end their protests within two minutes of arriving because they were blocking the street. Now, lawmakers, including AOC, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, Carolyn Maloney, others refused to leave and were eventually arrested by the officers. And then on social media, there was some debate as to whether there was actually an arrest, but um, we have some records of that showing that they were actually arrested for what it was. It was charged with crowding, obstructing, or uh, accommodating fine $50. So video shows AOC and Ilhan Omar actually being led away from the court with their hands behind their backs. Those images have gone viral. And then there was some dispute as to their posture because they're not actually handcuffed. They just right. have their hands behind their back. So I think it's, you know, fair. And you, you, all right, you can see them there. They are really making it look like they're handcuffed. They're not actually handcuffed. I saw some people saying that, well, they, you know, the police tell you to, maybe they told you to put your hands behind your back. Yeah, Alimi, um, actually. Alimi said that. But then you see, there's one person here. next to AOC who's also being led away, not one of the representatives, but she doesn't. She doesn't have it behind her back. So I, I think it's fair to say they were playing it up for the cameras. Um, maybe, you yeah. know, faking the handcuff thing might have been going a little too far. They were definitely playing it up for the cameras, which is fine. Yeah. It's a, it was a publicity stunt in some... <laughs> the in whole some thing. Obviously, the thing the is thing a publicity is stunt. They're trying to get publicity. You know, if, if AOC turns around and says, oh, yeah, I've been on the inside now, man, I've got... Like, that would obviously be ridiculous, but whatever. Although I think from the right here, there is a little bit of wanting it both ways here mm -hmm. because... If anybody is anything less than 150% compliant with cops and they wind up dead, you're like, well, just follow police orders. Just follow police and, orders. And, right. you, and this wouldn't have gone this way. Not saying it's good that you're dead, <laughs> but, you know, if you had just followed orders. And so when an officer, you know, tells you that you're under arrest and grabs you by the arm, like, grab, like, puts, your, right. puts their hand they were And they were, hold, they were escorting AOC, right. at they're, least. They're, they have her arm, yeah. and they're, they're pulling her along. There is, a, and maybe they say, hands behind your back. I don't know. But yeah. in that case, but it's, there's a natural impulse. Yeah. Because that, that, that's what's happening. And she, uh, you know, she, other, in other clips, she's, like, putting her fist up at the crowd, like, showing, obviously, like, if, if you're handcuffed, then you're obviously not like able to put your fist up at the crowd. So I, I, I asked you know, what the charges were, and that, that image is something that she sent. She also posted on her like Instagram stories. So incommoding, did you know that incommoding is a crime? Oh, I read that wrong. Incom what what does that even mean? What is that word? <laughs> I guess commoting. I said accommodating. It, commoting, <laughs> as I- Just we'd spelled it wrong. Incommoding? Commoting, as I read up. it, would be moving. Incommoding must be not moving, but not moving is not a crime. Incommode, I've never heard this word before. Shows you what an English major I am. Inco to inconvenience someone. They are incommoded by the traffic. What is another word for incommoded? Disc discommode, disoblige, inconvenience. 
right. I, w I was discommoded this morning by the traffic on and by the construction on Massachusetts Avenue, but I had my bike, so I was able to go to the sidewalk, which is probably also a $50 fine. Can't believe you uh, biked here. I right. was going to scoot here, and the heat made me reconsider, and I drove. Um, Incommode should be our word of the day, obviously. That's a good one. This is a good <laughs> one. A good I'm going to use this. So that's a, fifth, that's a $50 fine, and uh, she, w she was not taken to jail. Right. Uh, there's, like, there's now... Like she has to like report to the uh, she and the other lawmakers have to report for their uh, whatever I don't know <laughs> ran, pay, pay fifty bucks or whatever yeah. uh, within fourteen days. Okay, um, but why was she wearing a coat? Oh, because it's so hot. Yeah, she was kind of wearing a coat. It was a stylish yeah. coat, but maybe it's thin. Not to but do yeah, that. Was, okay, we have to stop. We're doing the. Right. We're doing the. But you're not talking about style. You're talking I was just about wondering comfort. why she was. Yeah, you're talking about comfort. I wasn't criticizing yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. Or it wasn't focusing on her appearance. It's not focusing on appearance. It's focusing on whether you're comfortable in this 95 degree heat, which yeah. it, it's cool compared. And we'll we'll talk about this later in the show, compared to the UK where it's right. 105 degrees and like burning. I was just in um, Vegas this weekend, also. How was it there? Degrees, 105 degrees. Well, but they have air conditioning. They're they're, they're used, used to it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so last thing we'll say on on this subject. I just to repeat. I think obviously it was a photo. It was a stunt. But that's the whatever. whole purpose of that the was thing. the purpose. Right. Republicans do stunts. Democrats do stunts. Um, you know, it's not. She wasn't going to be taken to jail, but that's fine. And that's that's just it. What else do we make of it? I, I also, and the last point I make on this, I think it feels a little weird if a cop is grabbing your arm to have your arm just, you know, dangling at the side, mm -hmm. because then it's awfully close to your holding hands with, with the guy Please. who's arresting you. Yeah. And you want to be clear that this is—that's not what's happening here. This is—I'm being—I'm being arrested here for a reason. Like this, I'm making a point. I'm incommoding for a reason. And so you put your hands behind your back to show this is this is what's happening. I'm not just holding hands with a cop. But it was really—it was—they made it look like it was handcuffs a little bit. Hmm. It was a little bit. It was like over the wrist. It was—I don't know. I can see the you I mean, can see I, the thing. I thought they were. Like, I mean, I thought they were cuffed too. Yeah. And then wa walking Ilhan Omar, watching Ilhan Omar, then she put her fist up. I'm like, how'd you do that? <laughs> really thin wrists, like, I'm like, oh. It was, I saw yeah. someone sharing the, uh, I think it's from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Have you ever seen that movie? The, mm -hmm. the, the, it's real people and cartoons. And he, uh, I forget the actor's name who plays the main guy, but he's handcuffed to Roger Rabbit for a while. And then, and then Roger Rabbit's able to just, like cartoon characters are, able to just take his, his uh, hand out. And, he, and the, the guy says, well, you could have done that all along. And he says, no, I could have only done it when it's funny. It's a cartoon. <laughs> it's a cartoon. It's a little bit go. like that. Yeah, a little basically. bit like that. Basically. All right. Well, we both have radars today, so we'll tell you what's on those coming up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, two months after it first scrapped the Disinformation Governance Board, the Department of Homeland Security now admits that there is, quote, no need for the board at all. A DHS advisory subcommittee made the declaration on Monday, according to the Washington Post. Previously, the board had technically just been paused. So this is according to WAPO. I'm quoting here. Michael Shertoff, co-chair of the council subcommittee that drafted the recommendation and a former DHS secretary, did not explain the panel's reasoning before the broader council voted to approve the recommendation Monday. He said the subcommittee is working on a full report on disinformation due August 3rd. There is, quote, no room for a separate disinformation governance board, said Shertoff, a former Bush staffer. Now, this meeting was only open to the public for audio, so it's not clear everyone who participated in it, participated in it rather. The motion was approved by voice vote only. That was it, the formal end of the disinformation board right there. 
So in case anybody needs a refresher, this disinfo board was first announced back in April. We covered it a lot on the show. It was rolled out in a very confusing fashion. In fact, the public found out about it before it was even announced, which made it seem secretive and creepy like it was being kept from us. Then DHS officials tried to assure the public that the board was so benign, it really didn't have much authority at all, which made everyone wonder why it was necessary then. So here's a previous radar I did discussing the topic. Now, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas tried and largely failed to address these concerns by noting that the board would serve in merely an advisory capacity, not have any actual power to police speech, so he said. That the Disinformation Governance Board did a bad job of communicating information about itself did not exactly instill confidence, and evidently DHS has now realized the entire project was a bad idea. So the disinformation board mostly attracted scrutiny from conservatives, some civil libertarians, due to concerns that its director, Nina Jankowicz, was a progressive ideologue with a poor track record of identifying misinformation. She had fallen for narratives that had hoodwinked other liberals, including the false notion that the New York Post's Hunter Biden laptop story was a hoax of Russian origin. Now, federal law enforcement officials played a prominent role in providing cover for the false notion. Fifty of them signed a letter asserting the story was Russian disinformation, which provided the mainstream media and social media companies with intellectual cover to suppress the story. So there's good reason to worry that Jankowicz's disinformation board, well, they could have done the same thing had it been up and running at the time of the Hunter Biden laptop decision or if it was up and running during a future uh, story of that caliber. So given all that... DHS's decision to affirm the board's demise seems wise to me. If even the federal homeland security bureaucracy, which still requires airline passengers to remove their shoes and belts before boarding a plane. Uh, can I come out of that again? I tripped over my words twice there. Out of the last graphic. There was a graphic on screen for some of this. <clears throat> From three, two, one. Fifty of them signed a letter asserting the story was Russian disinformation, which provided the mainstream media and social media companies with intellectual cover to suppress the story. So there's good reason to worry that Yankovich's disinformation board, they could have done the same thing had that board been running at the time of the Hunter Biden laptop story if it was running during a future story of that caliber. So given all that, DHS's decision to affirm the board's demise seems wise. If even the federal homeland security bureaucracy, which still requires airline passengers to remove their shoes and belts before boarding a plane for no legitimate safety-connected reason whatsoever, if they, even they, think a program, agency, or protocol is pointless, you can bet that it's really, really pointless. Uh, because they don't, like to, they don't like to relax things that to all of the public seem completely unnecessary. Like, no, 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 we're going to keep that going for 20 years, as again, as in the case of TSA. So the fact that they said it was pointless it means one of two things. Again, it was really pointless. Or I guess they were just so, uh, it, so taken with the blowback 
that they were like, fine, right. yeah, we don't, we didn't need this anyway. But they don't usually like they're pretty immune from blowback in general. You know, we're getting into right. the, the depths of the <laughs> right. safety bureaucracy. They don't care how much you hate what they're doing generally. Mm-hmm. So it it has to have really been an unnecessary idea. So this is going to go down as like just a train wreck from beginning to end. That they screwed up how people found out about it, and then were like, what the hell is this? Right. Um, the person they put in charge of it was. Yeah, for lack of a better word, a very obnoxious kind of resistance liberal type person with a very one-sided. And I don't. I'm, I'm sure she's an expert on a, a, a lot of things. I'm not saying she's like the worst person on earth or anything, but you know, a, a check for some of these issues is well, you know, how did you react when a story that you know didn't play to your or, or, or confirmed your your kind of. Uh, your biases, right. how did you react? Did you have any scrutiny or skepticism? And she was lockstep with the rest of the officials, the, the intelligence officials, whose, whose insistence that it was, that it was a lie, the, the Hunter Biden story, permitted then the media and social media to behave that way. Yeah. So that's, that was what I thought was the really legitimate criticism of her. And, and she was never asked to, rec- uh, to reckon with that. She was never asked to say, you know, if she had said, that was a huge mistake, I've learned from that. And I'm going to be a lot more careful about pronouncing things like that. But but it was never that never happened. And if you notice the the most clever of the deep state folks who like signed that uh, letter saying that this is has to quote a halt all the hallmarks all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation is that what they will say is that we never said it was wrong and we never said it was untrue. <laughs> might be true, might not be true. What we're saying is that Russia might be pushing this, might have gotten the laptop, or might be helping Rudy, might have gotten it to Rudy somehow, and that they are pushing this. And to them, and, and this is also a collision of a, a study of disinformation with what regular people understand people mm-hmm. to be disinformation. And so disinformation, it sounds strange, doesn't have to be untrue. Right. Like right. you look it up, right. look it up. This information right. can be true information that is taken out of context and pushed for nefarious for, purposes. For nefarious purposes, and that is any purpose that Russia is supportive of. Like right. that would be right. what how DHS would describe it. And so it is. It's absolutely. And also separately, it's 100 percent true that Russia, the United States, other governments monkey around in the politics of other countries by pushing propaganda and by but we were renaming somewhat disinformation. And so that has been a central focus of, of DHS is countering this Russian disinformation, which they push in, they were pushing in the French election. They push, in, they push it in all of these different, you know, and oftentimes it's true. Like they'll hack e- emails in France. That doesn't mean that what they got isn't untrue, right. but it's still, right. they still call it disinformation, which is very confusing. <laughs> Wait but it's true information. Well, this whole this whole category of uh, of expertise and of in, uh, to the extent it blends into uh, now it's a beat for many journalists. We mm-hmm. probably know many of them on the disinformation beat at mainstream uh, uh, outlets. Actually, I just saw NPR announced um, this week that they're adding a disinformation team, a, a a team of journalists who specializes in identifying disinformation. But ju- it's just like you said that readers would come away thinking it's kind of it's it's false uh, it's, information. Right, false information is a fact checking something like that. 
But um, this whole beat is getting very weird. Because then these people have a language, right, unto themselves, a language about interference and malfeasance and looking at the motives of the people spreading various things, which that's all fine to do, but but then it ends up casting aspersions on the information itself. And then, especially then when social media operates from that information, says, yeah, we're shutting down these conversations. We're not letting you read these things because they're false. But but it's not false. That's not Mm -hmm. what we're, that's not the issue here. It's consider the source, but not false. Right, and they would, those same types would say, that the Podesta hack was, and, and if you can put it at the feet of the Russians, that that was Russian disinformation, but all true. But all true. Like Podesta's, like those were his emails. Those were the actual excerpts of the Goldman Sachs speeches. Right. And so once you're, once you're calling that disinformation, you've kind of lost the game because people recognize what's happening here. Now you're being told that this thing is true, but you shouldn't talk about it. Well, that's weird. Like, right. If it's true, we should right. be able to talk about it. it look, uh, maybe Russia has nefarious purposes for exposing why, uh, you know, exposing the, the transcript of the Goldman Sachs speeches. We still want to read the Goldman Sachs speeches. Right. And, and, and media organizations, up until very recently, have agreed with that principle, that it didn't matter what the source of the information was. If it was true and verifiable, then they would publish it. And in the public interest. There were some sure. checks oh, that yeah. right, you know, just course, leaking yeah. private information about private people that's not in the public interest is different. But right. uh, They all ran the Podesta stuff. Right, right, yeah. right. And, so, but, then it be, but then when it came to the Hunter thing, a lot of them were like, hmm. Well, it took a year and a half. for, And now, right. now it's legitimate. Now you can discuss it. Now it's right. substantially verified. It's been verified over and over again that it's real information, even if you right. know, the, the origins of it are still somewhat dubious, although they, you know, how it was presented is still the most plausible argument for how the information gets. There was a laptop repair store. No, nobody's nobody's sig- come up his, with a more plausible... His signature's on there. <laughs> what else can you say? He's never denied it. Yeah. yeah. So, RIP, Disinformation Board. We hardly knew ye, but uh, good night. Go gently into that good night or whatnot. But um, I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next, Ryan. All right, Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, so absolutely nothing is going right for Joe Biden. Yet one of the few things that he could actually do that would probably overnight add maybe 5% to his approval rating has basically dropped off the radar. And of course, I am talking about rescheduling marijuana, which some people might refer to, Robbie might like to refer to as legalizing marijuana, but it's quite, it's, it's quite simple. Right now, there are, so there are five schedules of, of, of drugs. Schedule one being the drugs that are classified as the most dangerous with no medical applications and a penchant for abuse. Believe it or not, marijuana is listed in Schedule 1 as a result of the Controlled Substances Act and a bunch of idiotic decisions made by the federal government over the, over previous years. Now, there are executive orders that have multiple executive orders that have been written that would instantly just move marijuana out of Schedule 1. Now, you could move it to a different schedule or you could take it off the schedule completely. What that would do is it would enable then states 
to actually effectively implement laws. Because right now you have this gap between state laws and federal laws, and I'll talk about the implications for, for banking and the safety of, of growers and shop owners in a moment. But first, let's talk about the popularity of this. If Biden wants to, by executive action, you know, uh, eliminate all student loans, that's going to come at a political cost. I think he should do it, but there will be some blowback for it. Uh, you will have some economists complaining about inflation. You'll have a, a bunch of uh, re resent, resentful people who are saying, why are you canceling this debt when, when I paid off my debt? And, and on and on and on. When it comes to rescheduling marijuana, there is not that blowback. I was just looking up some of the polling data. Something like 63% of Republicans aged 18 to 29 are supportive of legalizing marijuana. If you ask people whether marijuana should be legal for recreational or medical purposes, a recent poll found 91% of people answering that question. You can't find 91% agreement on anything. Uh, surveys show that something like nearly 50% of people, adults at this point, have tried marijuana. And people who are currently using it, you get into very non-trivial sections, uh, sections of the population. Among, uh, among millennials, 20% in polls say they are currently using marijuana. I don't know what they mean by currently. Like, in, while, like that, while they were answering that question. But however they define currently, 20% of millennials say they, uh, say they currently use marijuana. 10% uh, of Gen, Gen Xers say that. And we're talking about current. That adds up to about 50 million people are users of are, you know, are smoking marijuana. That is, that is an insane number of people. And so if you have 50 million people with that direct experience of it, where is the backlash going to come from, that, that 9%? And so real quickly, on, on the, the banking sector, a lot of people uh, might not know this, but because federal law still prohibits marijuana, because it's in Schedule 1, that means that if you own a cannabis shop or if you are a grower or if you're uh, producing any of the supplies that go into it, that if a bank... If a bank works with you, that bank is subject to all sorts of criminal penalties when it comes to money, money laundering and, and other federal crimes. And that means that most people who are operating in the multi-billion dollar legal marijuana industry in the United States have to operate off the books. And many of them are operating in cash. And so you see these, uh, you know, you see they have to have security guards outside of these shops and you have to have you know, giant armored trucks moving cash around on a daily basis. And all that does is, uh, is put people at risk. And it also slows down the, the ability of people to then kind of uh, grow and diversify their businesses because it's very difficult to do that without uh, being able to get a bank loan. And so Biden could do this today. Like by the, the, the executive orders are written, he could do it by the end of the day. And I think, uh, Robbie, if he, if he did it, the only Republican response could be, this is just cynical electioneering. Mm -hmm. But nobody cares about that. No, it, People would be, be like, okay, fine, it's cynical electioneering. Please do it. He <laughs> so should do it. it like, as you point out, it's Schedule 1 right now alongside... Heroin, right. alongside an LSD, which should be taken out. Right. Of I mean, too, I would, you know, I would yeah. legalize all of them, but right. but you can certainly legalize marijuana. People are using it now. There's no deaths. There's no societal harms. 
Um, it's not like alcohol has more societal harms, tobacco, et cetera, uh, products that are far more available and legal than marijuana. It's just dumb. That, and as you said, Republicans massively support, especially if you frame it as, you know, don't you think Republicans, I've ta- I talked to Republicans, talk to people on the right, at, at every demographic, you say, don't you think this issue should be left up to states if, if states, local municipalities want to craft some greater ability for people with a prescription or in certain circumstances to use marijuana? Don't you think they should be allowed to do that? You really think the federal government should say they can't do that? That everyone agrees with that. Right. Everyone thinks it should be, at, the, at least there should be experimentation. At the, at the local level. So really, the only thing standing in the way, as far as we can tell, is Joe Biden's perhaps idiosyncratic desire to keep this drug um, illegal. He's kind of a, he's kind right. of a, a stiff. And, a, and, a wild, and a wild hypocrite on it, too, because you know, if he really thinks people should be in jail for this, right. then, then his own children. Who, right. Who, who, right. Like, right we're trying to yeah. free Brittany Griner right. right now, which right. we should, but for, for crimes that are still illegal, you st- we lock people yeah, up for exactly right. what she's accused of. Right. And, it, right. that's a, so that's, and that's horrible that they're doing that to her. Free Brittany Griner, but also free the people here that, that right. we actually could open the jails yeah. right now. Anyway. Yeah, and, and, and Kim, have, this is really dropped 40, off the 000. radar, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, you know, and there's 40,000 people right now incarcerated for various different crimes that are connected to marijuana. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, and when you really, when you look at the states and see, okay, which ones have have legalized marijuana? You know, I live in California, so it's completely legal. It's been here for a while. To me, it's it's just bizarre to have marijuana be illegal because I live in a state where it's so legal and there's shops all over the, and by the way, the shops are, you know, you go into them and they're extremely, you know, they look like Apple stores. I mean, they're right. beautiful. They're, they're clean. They're magnificent. And you're like, this is where you're selling marijuana. I mean, liquor shops need to take some notes, you know, right. on, uh, on what to look like. Um, but you know, a lot of states still don't have legalized weed. So, you know, there might be a bit of hesitation just because they might say, well, okay, but not every state has legalized. Lots of states have decriminalized or they have made it allowed for medical marijuana. But there are still, and a lot of states have it where it's like THC only or um, or CBD, right? But uh, there's still a right. lot of states, there's a handful of states, my home state of Idaho being one, there's a few states that have it still fully illegal. So I, I think until maybe the country moves more in that direction and more and more states say, yeah, we want to legalize it, then maybe the federal government will say, okay, fine. I mean, I agree with you. Okay. I, I totally agree with you that it should be completely legalized and, and yeah. taken off of Schedule 1 for sure. Although even if, even if Biden today took it off of Schedule 1, Idaho could still ban it. There's a there's a Roe v. Wade right. parallel here. The mm-hmm. way that the right. way that Roe didn't actually ban abortion nationwide, it'll you know Washington D.C., California, state, yeah. New York can still uh, can still allow it for now. I don't think the Supreme Court's done. Right. But what what this would say is Idaho, you want to ban? It would actually go back to kind of the way that we do alcohol. Uh, you know. Yeah, the, state by state. You, county by county, state state by right, state. There are dry counties. There right. are counties where you can't buy liquor on specific days of the week, right? You can't buy on Sundays. Sundays, you can't do all sorts of yeah. things on Sundays. If Idaho wants to yeah, have unkind I mean, counties, they can have that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, to your point about the banking situation, I mean, that is something here in California we do face. So if you do go into a marijuana store and you want to pay, you have to, there's an ATM. Usually every, right. every shop has an Insane. ATM in the lobby because you have to pay with cash because they won't accept cards. They can't because of the banking. And it's so dangerous. You're just putting... A target on the backs of all of these shop owners because everybody, everybody's right. like, "Oh, well, here's two hundred dollars," and then you're walking out and you're like, 
I know they've got $200 and I see people going in there constantly. That's the additional crime, the federal government's war on small business. There you go. Which I, I am also exercised about. All right, well, we're, we're all united on this one. I think so we are. that's a, <laughs> a Biden, do it, do it. Let the people. Ryan turning out that he's a libertarian, right? I mean, yeah, that sounded well, so libertarian this, yeah. of you, right? Yeah, for sure. This is a very, this is an area of overlap by independents, yeah. libertarians, and, uh, and, and everybody. Uh, Class right, first leftist, pretty much so. everybody, except for real. I mean, who is against marijuana? Which, yeah, who's which is that nine percent who is like, <laughs> I don't even support medical marijuana. I mean, I talk. Like, I've talked to some of those people. There are some conservatives people. who are like that, um, who think. I mean, they they can't cite any harms. They'll say, oh well, some people are like a little lazier, I guess, or they, they, but they can't find. Or some, you know, which, some well, people struggle with it, but it's not an inherently addictive substance. Um, like at all. So anyway, it's the arguments are. But that's I, that's what it is. I mean, it, coming from a I state guess. where it is illegal, it is the more religious group that right. is saying they don't want it because they believe it's a gateway drug to other drugs. So right. yeah. um, they, they like don't even want people, people drinking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Idaho is also one of those states where you can't buy liquor anywhere except for a state run liquor store. So. I'm not uh, not going to visit Idaho anytime soon. <laughs> we're not going to join you on vacation there. There's plenty yeah. of drinking. There's plenty of All alcohol. Right. Don't well, worry about it. You just can't. You just got to Thank you. I'm, I'm, put a, I'm, I'm put at ease now. Yeah. The United Kingdom is experiencing one of its hottest summers ever with record temperatures of 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Normal summer temperatures for the UK never rise above 77 degrees Fahrenheit, causing this heat wave to be issued as a red extreme heat wave warning by the UK's National Weather Service, Met. This morning we issued a rare red weather warning. This is for extreme heat on Monday and Tuesday, covering a large part of England. Amber warnings have been extended across Wales and into parts of Scotland. These are unprecedented temperatures we're talking about, extreme heat that's likely to cause some serious problems. Towns across England have seen homes and businesses destroyed by wildfires, with London's mayor blaming the event on the consequences of climate change. This consequence of climate change, this excessive heat approaching 40 degrees and exceeding it, uh, these sort of fires we're seeing uh, today uh, could become the norm rather than the exception. It's so hot that even Nintendo, Nintendo issued a warning on Twitter advising users not to operate their Switch device in degrees higher than 35 Celsius, equivalent to 95 degrees. You can't even sit inside and play Switch. That now now I'm, I'm affected now. Right. Now, now it has finally affected Robbie. So yeah. Deputy editor at Carbon Brief, uh, Simon Evans, joins us now d- joins us now to update us on the weather across the pond. Uh, welcome. Morning. So uh, what, are we, what are we looking at today? Uh, yesterday, record-breaking heat across the country. Uh, I had heard some, some, hope, hopeful, some hopeful notes from people that there could be thunderstorms coming that could knock it down a little bit here and there. How, how are people handling it today? Yeah, today is, uh, I mean, it's still pretty uncomfortable on the tube, you know, on the underground. Um, but in terms of outside temperatures, we're, we're back down to what would you know historically have been considered quite a hot day in the uk so more like 27 degrees but certainly nothing compared to yesterday right. and um yeah i mean certainly nintendo players may have been affected but you know the consequences are pretty serious and my understanding is that in a lot of europe uh, maybe the uk as well but please fill me in uh, air conditioning is not nearly as widely available as it is here in the states uh, is that true are people are there a lot of people without air conditioning having to deal with this heat 
Yeah, so it's ex it's extremely unusual outside of you know commercial properties to see air conditioning installed. So I think roughly only five percent of homes in the UK have air conditioning. It's really really not something that most people would would consider even having. And what do we know so far about the the consequences when when you get a heat wave like this, particularly in an area not not used to it? You're going to have people die. Uh, what and, and you're often going to see, you know, uh, fires break out. So what 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 do we know so far about uh, what happened in the UK yesterday? Yeah. So I mean, in terms of in terms of deaths due to to extreme heat, you know, we won't know the numbers on that for some time. But it, you know, in previous heat waves in the UK, thousands of people have died, um, more than you know, more, over over and above what you would have expected in a normal week. Um, we've seen, you know rail tracks buckling uh, and services cancelled. We've seen uh, flights cancelled at Luton Airport because the runway was melting. Um, and, you know, just, just even you know, in terms of personal experience, you know, close friends of, of ours had to take their, their nine-month-old baby to, to hospital because of heat stroke. So, you know, this is, this is affecting everyone around the country in, you know, in ways that, you know, weren't really expected. And, and you know, I would say having been tracking the heat wave across Europe quite closely over the past few days. You know, obviously there have been severe forest fires across, you know, Spain, Portugal, France. Uh, even having watched all of that happening, you know, over the last week, I still really wasn't expecting to see very widespread outbreaks of wildfire in the UK across multiple multiple UK locations in London, but across other parts of the country as well. Yeah, I, I didn't either. I, I, you know, we're uh, ignorant over here in the states that even that there, you know, significant um, forest coverage in the UK is, is something I, I wouldn't have necessarily known. Are the, are the fires still going on today, or have they been put out? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't don't have an update for you on that. I mean, you know, a lot of these are, you know, are fires in, in grassland as well. So it's not not just forests. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we do historically have a history of you know forest fires but but typically relatively isolated you know relatively infrequent to see that you know the the number and intensity of fires affecting you know residential areas as well as you know as well as you know more more kind of countryside locations that's really unusual and last year's you know UN IPCC report as as I'm sure you know finally came to the the conclusion that these that these types of extreme weather events were were being were being driven by climate change. You know that was the thing that was kind of that was the missing piece that the IPCC had yet to kind of conclude. They they now have concluded it. Nobody really questions that out outside of some fringe elements. How is the how is this playing politically in in the UK? Is is there anything of a of a, of a wake up call here? What what do you, what do you expect to see the to be the fallout of this? Yeah, yeah. So ju just to recap um, for your listeners, um, the IPCC in, it, in its sixth assessment report, so it was virtually certain, you know, that that the the number and intensity of extreme weather events had increased as a result of climate change. Um, and you know, the UK's Met Office, its chief scientist, said yesterday that, that the extreme heat, you know, the record setting, forty point three degrees in, in centigrade, nearly one and a half, one oh five in Fahrenheit. Um, he said that that would have been virtually impossible um, without all the greenhouse gases that we've added to the atmosphere. Um, so there's really no doubt that you know the heat wave that we saw yesterday in the UK, um, what you know was was intensified and you know effectively made made possible by by warming. 
Um, in terms of the political consequences, I mean, it's coming at a really interesting time politically because we're we're obviously in, in the midst of the Tory leadership contest. Um, we're you know looking for for someone to replace Boris Johnson as leader of the Conservative Party and therefore as UK Prime Minister. And actually, a number of the candidates to replace Boris Johnson have have been really kind of flip flopping on on climate. You know, their commitment to the UK's net zero target. Um, you know, even now, it, you know, it's it's pretty unclear how how fully committed. You know, all all of the remaining candidates have now said that they would stick to net zero by twenty fifty. But in terms of their practical commitment to that, you know, how how much they would really follow through on that pledge, you know, it's really pretty unclear at this stage. Because my understanding, though, is that the UK's political system, it's not um, the issue of climate change is not quite as polarized as it is here in the U.S., um, you know, where you have obviously a significant number of Republicans who uh, want a very different or, or, or don't want many of the climate policies that Democrats do. It's a little bit um, less like that uh, in the U.K. There's more support for doing uh, among the Conservative Party for and doing also what Labour wants is that is that true? Is that still true? Um, do you think that's going to change? You know, given what's going on with the leadership race. Yeah. So I mean, it, it is the case that there's you know there's overwhelming public support for taking action on climate change, and that you know that's not true only with the public at large, but also with within Conservative voters specifically, and within you know specific different constituencies of Conservative voters. So pretty much wh whichever way you cut it up, there's there's strong support for climate action. And we, we've enjoyed this long period in the UK of you know cross-party consensus on on tackling climate change. And we've seen you know under a series of Conservative governments since you know 2010, the UK has continued you know to to cut its emissions, continued to, to build more renewables and so on. Um, whether that's going to change now, I mean, there's certainly there's certainly a, you know a vocal minority within the Conservative Party and you know in, within the sort of media allies of, of that minority, I guess you would say, that has been attempting to, to kind of make this into a wedge issue. They've they've been attempt, attempting to kind of associate climate action with the kind of broader culture wars narrative. You know, criticising even you know even just like one or two days before the heat wave that we've we've just experienced that you know with all of the consequences that we've already talked about, um, they're, you know publishing comment articles describing the Met Office as you know woke climate alarmists. Um, so there's you know there's a pretty concerted effort to to create this kind of wedge issue, sim more similar to what you have in the US. But you know I, I think so far there's no evidence that that's going to wash with the public. All right. Poor timing for that attempted argument. Uh, Simon, you know, thanks so much for, for filling us in. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. A Delaware judge agreed to fast-track Twitter's lawsuit seeking to force Elon Musk to follow through on his contract to buy the company for $44 billion, according to Law & Crime. So managing editor of Law and Crime, Adam Klasfeld, says Twitter is arguing that Musk is attempting to sabotage the company and is taking every opportunity to trash them, adding that he invented the bot issue to manufacture an exit ramp that does not exist. Adam is here with us now to tell us more. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Uh, so the thinking, I, I guess, is that the judge agreeing to hear this case very quickly is sort of itself a win uh, for the company. Can you explain more about that? Yes, well, it's a big win for the company because 
Elon Musk had attempted to get the trial in early February, basically saying that Twitter's claim that the drop dead date was in October was false, that he had plenty of time. And this is crucial, that they needed time for complex technical discovery, which is, of course, Elon Musk's claim that Twitter was misleading him and Twitter users more generally about which a percentage of accounts were inauthentic. They claim it's less than 5%. And basically, Twitter has argued that this was a manufactured issue that Elon Musk set up because he saw that the market conditions weren't looking quite as favorable as when he started this. So the judge rejecting the kind of long timeline necessarily, even though she didn't, she hasn't made any rulings on the merits of this yet, this is just a timeline set up, but it does suggest that this complex technical discovery that he wanted uh, wasn't something that resonated with the judge. She said a very brisk timeline. It was just slightly uh, uh, later than Twitter had wanted. They wanted this September trial, but it's still a very brisk trial. We're going to get it in the fall. And what's what's your reading of whether or not he's he's going to get away with this kind of bot uh, excuse for for getting out of this? You know, I, I, people have criticized him, and he responded to this criticism in the letter that he sent to Twitter, saying that he never raised the bot issue in the beginning. He says, "Well, that's it's not his fault, not his problem. He didn't have to raise it in in the very beginning." You know, what what would he have to prove? Like, what who who and who has the burden of proof here going into this uh, into this case? Well, every legal expert who I've spoken to about this issue doesn't think that it's a winner, essentially, that essentially he waived due diligence on this. Uh, Twitter argues in court that it's not part of the agreement. Now, the agreement is included in their lawsuit. And it's a very interesting read, the lawsuit. We attach all the court documents uh, to our coverage generally. And if re readers want to see the lawsuit, uh, they embed Elon Musk's tweets essentially criticizing the company on this bot issue, hammering the bot issue again and again. And Twitter says that it's basically he's gratuitously trashing them. There's even one of Musk's tweets uh, embedded in the lawsuit that is essentially a poop emoji that is embedded in the lawsuit. So this kind of, you know, no legal expert is essentially saying that this practice of Elon Musk tweeting again and again his criticism of the company is going to be something that will favor him in Delaware Court of Chancery, quite the opposite. But can you walk us through this? So Twitter providing all this evidence that Elon has disparaged the company, that you know was not acting uh, responsibly as someone involved in it, is subjecting it to all this public criticism. But then what they're trying to do is sue him into forcing him to buy the company. So does that play against their, the idea that it's, it's from the company's perspective, how can it be good to make this person take over the company who they're also proving has said all these disparaging things about it and is thus not you know, competent to be in charge of it? Well, it sounds counterintuitive, to say the least. Uh, of course, as you note, that this what they are seeking is specific performance of the contract, meaning they want him to follow through on this deal to purchase the company, that they want this uh, this billionaire CEO who uh, that 
uh, who they claim is trying to sabotage the company by inviting the SEC to investigate it. Uh, that's the man who they want to purchase and own it. Now, one might say that this is a litigation position that they want to uh, that both sides are essentially playing hardball and maybe they'll go to the negotiating table. Time will tell. But the relief that they're seeking and you correctly point out uh, this person who they say is trashing the company, that is disparaging the company, that is trying to sabotage the company, is the very person that they want to complete the deal, which would necessarily mean him owning the company. Hmm. And from the, based on the legal experts that you've talked to, what are the chances that this winds up uh, with a ruling that forces the sale to close? And given what's happened to the stock price in the wake of all of this, is that still possible? Like, is there enough collateral based, you know, you know, does, would he have the money and the investors still given what has happened? Mm. Well, the experts who I've spoken to say that Twitter ha it seems to have a pretty strong case. I mean, the Delaware Court of Chancery uh, wants to have contracts be predictable. There's been some uh, speculation going around that the Delaware Court of Chancery uh, might not want to uh, tempt the waters at Elon Musk. There's been some speculation what will happen if the court orders specific performance of the contract and Elon Musk's defies it. Uh, the experts that I have spoken to kind of poo-pooed that possibility. They say that as a leading American businessman, uh, Elon Musk will cannot thumb his nose at the court and still have the kind of coveted position running companies that he does. So uh, the so the kind of chances that he would thumb his nose at it um, would be low in the view of the experts who I have spoken to. And also, uh, they think that uh, Twitter has brought a strong case, but time will tell and we'll find out very quickly given the October trial date. What do you think is the likelihood that, I mean, isn't this going to isn't there a strong likelihood, I guess, unless, you know, the unique personalities involved, Elon Musk obviously being a very unique personality, that they would settle and, you know, he, what he gives, I don't know, Twitter gets a billion dollars and Musk walks away, something like that. In a normal circumstance, probably something like that would be the outcome. But Elon is a very interesting figure, to say the least. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that both sides recognize that the parties are trying to get the best litigation position that every day that this goes on, Twitter argues that it causes harm for the company. Now, October might seem like a couple of months away, might seem like a blink of an eye, but it's a couple of months of this uh, being out there, of this uh, being unsettled, and Twitter argues that every day that kind of damages the company. So that could lead people to the negotiating table. So can all of the analysis out there saying that Twitter has brought a strong case might lead Musk to the negotiating table. So it's quite possible that it's not an all or nothing proposition and that both sides are essentially playing a high stakes game of chicken. And there's been there's been some speculation that uh, buying Twitter was not actually you know, Elon Musk's ultimate goal here, and his actual goal was to be able to sell a bunch of Tesla stock without raising concerns among Tesla investors and the market that he was like abandoning Tesla. You know, the, the share price was, you know, extraordinarily high. He 
you know, you, you could imagine somebody you know, holding that much stock that has gone, you know, ten, gone up 10x over the last you know, year or whatever, wanting to get some out of it. But so much of the brand and so much of the value was dependent on, on him and is dependent on him that if he just starts selling, then it, then it collapses. And so he's caught in a real catch-22 there. And so he has to come up with some way to be able to justify selling that doesn't look like he's trying to diversify out of Tesla. And you could come up, oh, he's, he's a free speech defender. He's, he's a crazy dude who wants mm. to own Twitter. That makes perfect sense. This doesn't have anything to do with him wanting to cash out of his Tesla. He just wants to own Twitter so that he can own the lips. Like, and so that allows him then to get you know to pull money out of Tesla, but he doesn't actually want to own Twitter, so then he blows up the deal. Like that's the speculation of what was going on here. Do the legal experts that you've talked to put any stock in that? And do, do, does, do the, does the pattern of behavior kind of fit with that theory? Mm. Well, there have been theories of many different uh, ulterior motives on Elon Musk's part, forgetting about what the legal experts are saying, even in court yesterday, you had Twitter's counsel saying, hey, we've provided all of this information, this private information about our accounts for this, these supposed bot audits. And there is speculation that Elon Musk wants, wants to start a competing platform and that this this so that would be another idea for an ulterior motive. Uh, I'll give you, an, of course, there is other litigation with Elon Musk in the Southern District of New York brought by the SEC. Now, that was caused by a very similar declaration uh, with a, what he was going to purchase uh with that take Tesla private and inserting a 420 joke into the uh, price of the stock. Remember when he uh, when he made this offer to purchase Twitter, he inserted the same sort of figure. There was uh, there was plenty of speculation at the time, uh, as you know, that this wasn't serious, that this is a uh, he was brought to court by the SEC in the Southern District uh, for these brash announcements on Twitter um, where something else is lurking in the background. That's fascinating. Uh, and, and also still amusing that so, you know, that so many employees, uh, you know, crying, miserable at the idea that Elon Musk was going to take over the company. Now the company's suing for some make to do that happen. just that thing, same thing. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. NBC is reporting that Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez paid a Texas blogger to attack his Republican opponent, new GOP Congresswoman Mayra Flores, with a race with racist name calling, including her, uh, including the name Miss Frijoles 21 times and calling her a cotton picking liar. Flores took the insults in stride, saying, quote, I love Frioles and I grew up eating Frioles. I'm not embarrassed in my upbringing. Here's to Miss Frioles 2022. <laughs> The attacks on Flores prompted a wave of denunciations by fellow Democrats. And according to Hill reporter Rafael Bernal, it's Republicans who are courting Hispanic voters after Democrats failed to invest and reach out to Latinos. Rafael also reports that the National Republican Congressional Committee says it's recruited 102 Hispanic candidates in this cycle. Hill reporter Rafael Bernal joins us now to discuss. Welcome back, Rafael. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, thanks for joining us. What is the situation, first of all, with this blogger who was paid to go after Flores, or he was paid and he also went after Flores? Was it, do you know if he was paid specifically to say these things? I think the, the candidate himself has probably denounced them by, by now. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I, I reached out to a representative from Flores, heard from her, uh, the, basically the same response she's been giving that the, uh, the blogger's statements are sexist and racist. And I, th I think we can all agree that the blogger's statements are pretty terrible. But I also talked to Vicente Gonzalez and, and he, he disputes the way this has been reported. He says his campaign did pay for campaign ads about a thousand dollars on this very popular blog in South Texas. And, you know, he has now denounced what this McHale character has said, the way he said it. And he pledged to me, he did tell me, he pledged he will never again advertise on that, on that McHale report, which does mean there is at least agreement that McHale crossed the line between the two candidates. Mm. And if you're calling her that, I, I don't know what the strategy there is. Is it to get more, I don't know, white voters or more racist voters or something? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like a term of, well, especially in how she you know, embraced the actual idea of Frijoles, even though calling her that was dumb. It's not like that's going to turn off Latino. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, I mean, it is, it is a callback to a racial slur used against Mexican-Americans that we're not going to repeat here. But also it, investigating who Mikhail is, he's, he's a Democratic blogger. He supports Democrats in South Texas. He's a longtime member of the community. He was a, apparently he was a high school coach for for a number of decades, and and he's very embedded in the Latino community. But he's always had this sort of uh, this style, this very aggressive, a little bit uh, edgy style. But uh, but it seems that's caught up to him. Really, I mean, it's it's kind of a reflection of how hardcore politics are in the Rio Grande Valley. Where, where candidates do usually go after each other really aggressively, it's historically been in Democratic primaries where that happens because Democrats have been winning many elections or most important elections in that region for a very long time. But Republicans have made gains. Let's, let's remember the, the mayor of McAllen is now a Republican, for instance. And, and, you know, and Flores herself, although she won a special election with really low participation, you have a Republican representing a Rio Grande Valley district. So it, it, I think what's happening is that tough rhetoric, that sort of almost unacceptable rhetoric from the Democratic primaries and, and how Democratic politics takes place historically there is bleeding into the general election. And now we all get to see, you know, we all get to see how the sausage is made and it's not pretty. Yeah, and my, my guess on this, and tell me if you think this is right, is that be, because this so often played out in Democratic primaries and often played out in Spanish, that the, that the kind of national media just never picked up on it because they'd have to be alerted by somebody in that Democratic primary of it happening because they're, they, they're not embedded, they're not following uh, these, these races very closely, and there weren't a ton of Democratic congressional primaries. It's probably a lot, you know, it, it, we're talking about lower seats for the most part. Um, whereas now you have, you know, Republicans who are running competitive races against Democrats, they see that and they're like, oh, the national press is going to eat this up. That's my guess about how this, this becomes a, a national story. Is that, is that about right? Or what's your, what's your read on why it, it stayed under the radar, the national media's radar, 
un, un, until Flores was able to make this a, a national story. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, there there is you know bipartisanship breeds attention to a certain extent, but there's also well, we haven't been paying enough attention to Latino politics. You know, California maybe since the 1990s, uh, which for the size of California's Latino population is is kind of crazy. But also, Latinos in California weren't engaged politically before the 1990s. Uh, Texas is sort of going a similar process. Florida was the exception, but Florida Latino politics are very different from the rest of the country. And there were, you know, districts here and there, a district in New York, a district in Chicago. Now it's going to be two districts in Chicago. But Latino politics with Latino demographics and the Latino engagement is growing. And we're just paying more attention because politicians are, you know, paying a little bit more attention and investing a little bit more in the community. Okay, so help me understand this because I'm lost and I'm sure a lot of our viewers are lost uh, about this as well, but Vicente Gonzalez sounds like a Hispanic name. So if so, I'm trying to understand this. Why would, so he pays a blogger, the blogger who's a Democrat uses racist slurs towards Myra Flores but I mean, are, aren't they this? I mean, how how is this working? I, I'm I'm really Kim, are, are you saying he's a Mr. Mister Frijoles? So what is it? <laughs> what, what, how is it a distinguishing thing to say? Why he would use so, or pay somebody to use slurs that are, especially if they're within the Hispanic community, you're saying that they're in this area. So I, I the 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 audience that he's even writing to, they're Hispanic and. Uh, so I'm having a hard time understanding well, I, I hear, what is the hear, dynamic here. I want to hear Raphael's answer to this, but basically my understanding, <laughs> is he was just taking out ads on the blog, and he got caught up yeah. then and blamed for the rhetoric. Is, I mean, what, what's, Raphael, what's, so, what's your sense? Yeah, because what on earth is he thinking is a good question. That is absolutely correct. So what, what he says, his, what, he disputes the way the story was reported as, it was reported as him paying somebody to say these things. And he disputes that entirely. He says, this is a very popular blog in the region. I paid a thousand bucks to have my ad on there. Perfectly normal for any candidate. And then he said these things. The blogger said these things. So I, so Vicente Gonzalez pulled the ads and vowed never to, to you know pay for ads on that blog again. That's one side of it. The other side of it is, yes, Vicente Gonzalez is Mexican-American. Uh, Mayra, Mayra Flores is also Mexican-American, although she was born in Mexico. She is the first Mexico-born woman elected to Congress in, in history. Um, so they're, they're both, uh, let's say, ethnically, if, if not the same, very similar. They're from the same region. They're, they have similar origins. What you're getting to is a lot of nuance in how Hispanics view themselves and how Hispanics uh, treat each other. There is, you know, there's for for all the beauty that there is in. Let's stick with specifically Mexican American culture and Mexican culture. There is there is a lot of internal racism. There is a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of leftovers from a colonial period that never never really ended in Mexico, and and then from from borders crossing families and, and families crossing borders, there is, there are, there are sort of self-hating attacks that happen a lot within Hispanic communities and they, debil they debilitate the community, they're, they're terrible, but it is part of the culture. It's a darker part of the culture. 
um, that, does that excuse for however embedded Mikhail might be in the Hispanic community in that region? Does that excuse that kind of language on a political blog? I, I mean, I would argue no. Uh, I'm sure Mr. Mikhail has a has a different idea. Mm. And what do you make of these, you know, these these attempts to portray? There was one in the New York Times. They're really uh, in the mainstream media and some Democratic forces trying to portray Flores and others as the, you know this far right labeling that. I think is kind of clumsy, and and maybe she has some views or has said some things in the past that you could describe, or some tweets that you could describe as, as uh, as fringe or something. But you know that a lot of the views she's representing really aren't outside of what a large community of actually Latino voters want, and and that how the Democratic Party has missed that now Republicans are, are capturing a larger or are prepared to capture a larger and larger share, uh, share of this group, you know, based on, uh, uh, I, you know, interest in uh, social conservative values, uh, contempt for socialism, um, you know, that, that this group does, is, isn't necessarily thinking of, you know, immigration and more immigration is some top issue. Talk to us a little bit about that before we let you go. Well, I certainly wouldn't have pitched a headline saying the far right Latinas, but the New York Times did and successfully. And, and, but to be fair, they're not calling her far right because of her mantra and she's stuck to it. She answers almost everything with the phrase God, family and country. That's not far right in any, like any description among Latinos, among white people, anywhere in the world. It's just not far right. They are calling her far right because she's engaged in election denial. She's engaged in some QAnon, you know, QAnon associated banter. Right. That is in anywhere in the world that is far right. The, the, does it matter that she's Latina to engage in, in election denial? No, it doesn't matter. That's why I think it's unfortunate to tie those two terms together. Mm. Well, Rafael, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Pleasure being here. Los Angeles homeless advocates are stunned after Joe Rogan recently joked about shooting homeless people unprovoked on the Joe Rogan experience. One advocate called his comments repulsive and out of touch. Let's make sure we watch, see what he said. And then uh, we're on the underpass and there's porta potties, not one either, like four, like a deck of porta potties. Wow. And then someone has a car parked there on the sidewalk, like partly on the sidewalk. So they're like half blocking a lane. And then they have like a, a canopy draped over their car and they have just stacks of shit. And then next to it was a dresser. They had a dresser. Jesus. So they had their shoes and a shoe rack. There was a shoe rack. Like this is where they live. They're That's just... really wild. I didn't know also that, um, you know, when, when you see stuff like that on the streets, at least in Los Angeles or maybe in California, those are that's protected property, like by law. You know that, like if you were. So to you're go, not supposed to do that. But and, and but like that's that person's property by law. If you oh, were to the go, homeless person's property yes. is protected. Yes, absolutely. Huh? If you were to go and try to move that or take that, you get arrested. Yeah, yeah. Hilarious. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't arrest you if you shot somebody. Maybe mm-hmm. you should just go and shoot the homeless people. I like your ideas. Yeah. And if nobody claims it, I mean, nobody does anything about violent crime in L.A. anymore. It's a joke. Yeah. They're just letting people out. Hmm. Well, that's the clip. I guess I would, 
I don't know that joked about homeless shooting homeless people. He he was making the point that like he obviously thinks crime is out of control and wants more done about it, and was pointing at pointing to a hypocrisy, which I guess may or may not be true. That if you you know that the police aren't doing enough about this, so you could do that, and they wouldn't do anything. It's I guess it's not the same as what people are upset about. What what did you guys think about it? Yeah, I mean, so the. The way I understood what he meant to be saying is it, it's so absurd that you couldn't steal somebody's shoes, you'd get arrested for that, but you could shoot them and you would not get arrested for that. And, and that is absurd. Now, when that comes out of his mouth, it's horrifying. And I think as soon as he heard himself say that, he should have been like, I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that. I'm pointing out the absurdity of the distinction between these, these two crimes. Uh, because it is, it's jarring to hear somebody say that and dehumanizing and, and not everybody is going to get the point that he's trying to right. make and they're going to hear something different. And, and also, it should be illegal to take somebody's shoes. If, they're, if their shoes are sitting there in a shoe rack and they're homeless, you're going to take their shoes? That should be right. against the law. Yeah, they, yeah. Also, they also shouldn't, but they shouldn't build structures under. Well, right, they, we should. Right. right, we should have enough homes yeah. uh, for people that can't afford homes. Yeah. Like, and, and Matt Iglesias had a good piece. And, uh, Kim, not to sidetrack this, but Go ahead. Uh, he, he had an interesting piece recently about how single room occupancies, SROs, have basically vanished yeah. from, our, from our world. And that what, what a lot of people need in transitionary times, because people are not homeless for their entire lives, when, when, they're, when they're having these, this very difficult moment, what they need is they need a clean bed, uh, they need a sink, they need a shower. They need some someplace safe that they can that they can go to get to get clean, to sleep, to have some privacy, and single rooms, single room occupancy used to be the place that uh, that people like pe- that people in those situations would would use. We don't we don't basically allow them anymore. We gotta we gotta bring those back. There has to be there has to be places for people like that to go because our society produces people who cannot afford three thousand dollars a month. Uh, for apartments, yeah. is that they, they need to live somewhere, and so they're going to live under the underpass, unless we so do something is, else. Why has single room occupancy been made illegal? What about it zoning. was considered? So zoning. Nobody wants it in their neighborhoods, basically. Yeah, zoning. Okay. Government made it. They local, city councils, boards, etc., commissions. Government made it. Uh, made it at you know at, at behest of small groups of community members pushed for this to make it illegal to build that kind of housing. I mean, this is a, you know, uh, this is a problem I, I call out a lot. I know you do sometimes as well, Ryan, that uh, so, a lot of the kinds of housing we need, more just more housing in general, but denser housing mm-hmm. um, that would help with this, the supply being artificially constricted is impossible because even if most people understand we need more of this kind of housing, the, the relevant decision makers are very captured by the small number of people in the community who show up and say, no, I don't want this new building. I don't want this. I, I don't want yeah. anything to change. I don't want my property values impacted, even if it would be so much better for the society as a whole, for the homeless people. In general, you could maybe, you'd have the streets be cleaner if you had more housing and you could get those kinds of people into the right accommodations. But people fight it, small numbers of people fight it, and, and commissions listen, and then you can't do that kind of thing. And it's, it's very frustrating, because this is a problem. I mean, right. I, you know, the, the, the piles of, of filth people you know, um, are, are, are you know, get getting over time who live on the street or who live in public parks, live on their underpasses. Um, some of them going through psychi- psych- 
psychotic episodes, uh, who need medicine, who are you know thrashing and shaking and and on drugs, and it doesn't it doesn't at all feel humanitarian to me, you know, to right. leave this them in this situation where they're accumulating trash and also a danger to themselves and sometimes other people, and to not be able to do anything. Now, I, you know, the, obviously shooting them is a horrifying thing and is not, should not be done. I don't actually think Rogan was saying that, but, uh, but, and even in general, maybe more, you know, police kind of crime approach. I, I don't, I'm not co-signing that approach either, but something has to be done because it really is getting out of hand in a lot of cities. Yeah, I don't think Rogan really meant like, oh, let's go, you know, shoot homeless people by any means. But people, anything you say, you know, especially people that aren't going to watch the entirety of his episode, of course, they're going to scream about it and say that he's a heartless human being that, you know, doesn't believe in, uh, doesn't think that homeless people are are humans. And, you know, they're going to say whatever they say. I I didn't, I definitely did not take his comment that way. Uh, And I agree, you know, maybe he could have, afterwards said, oh, you know, I'm not saying do that. But then again, you know, we have to, should we have to qualify every single statement because people are misunderstanding what we say? We would, (laughs) we would never get anywhere in any of our conversations ever, I think. Um, But, you know, look, I, I've been living in Venice, California, in the thick of homelessness in Los Angeles for uh, almost a decade now. And I've seen it firsthand. I've made friends with many of those that are li- many people who are living on the street. I had a neighbor, literally, who was uh, he was my neighbor below me, who at one point then decided when he when his when his uh, lease was up, he went and decided to live on the street. That's actually wow. where he went to go live, and he would use my shower. <laughs> He'd come over. So, um, wow. and so for some people, it's a choice. There is that, like from the people that I've talked to, there are. Some people that just want to get away from the man, right? And they just want to go and live. And they're usually not living in a tent on the street. They're usually living in a van or they get themselves an RV and they park it and that's where they live. And there's a lot of that here. We have hordes and hordes of RVs. If you drive around Venice, you'll see Mm. RVs lining the roads and then you'll see people that do live on the street in their tents. And then you'll see the people that accumulate massive amount of things. So we're not just talking about shoes and stealing a person's shoes. I totally agree. You should not be able to just go and take things from a homeless person. I do think that should be illegal. But some of them, I mean, they accumulate couches, beds. They make entire like apartments on the street uh, with everything. And they put structures over it. And so it's like a little home. And it is... You know, it's a it's a huge problem because we all pay for the public space. We all want to go use and enjoy public space like on the beach. And yet many of us are unable to because it's now somebody else's house. Um, And so it's a really tricky situation. And I will say that when in Venice, there was a discussion about building some of some occupant, you know, some some sort of shelters. They weren't they weren't permanent structures that they wanted to put up in this empty parking lot, but they wanted to put something there. And I, yeah, the residents got to, I mean, all the liberal Democrat Mm -hmm. voting, this is a very, very blue area. Everybody prides themselves, you know, on being Democrat. And they were very vocal about, we don't want that here. And my take on it was, and I would even say to my name, I don't understand. I would rather them be in this parking lot, which I would have to walk by, Every day, I'd park my car on the other side of the parking lot. I have to walk past the parking lot to get home. Um, 
you know, I, I would rather walk past that than have to step over tents and people and around yes. and have people on the That to me is more Absolutely. dangerous 100%, and 100%. 100%. A designated area, like a parking lot, there's plenty of parking lots that can be converted into that kind of thing. That is so much better than, yeah, than in every every green space has a couple tents and then a couple more and then they have to shut it down and they have to do yeah i yeah absolutely oh, and Venice, it's rows on the beach i mean yeah. we're talking thousands of people yeah. are living no, i, I out saw it when i came uh, when i when i came down when That's i hung right, out with yeah. you when i yes. when we did the show from yeah. your apartment i went running on the beach it was uh yeah, it was yeah, not yeah and they've, they've actually cleaned it up quite a bit and they've moved them into they did end up ultimately getting uh, the ability to take over the parking lot and put up some structures, some temporary structures there. But that was a real battle in the community. And um, but it did. It made it so much better now. Like you can go running on the beach and you're not going to see as much of it as it as it was. So, you know, it's but what did the residents want? They wanted them gone completely. They didn't want them on the beach. They also didn't want them in the parking lot. They wanted them to go somewhere away they mm -hmm. wanted they, they say yeah the city can build houses that's fine give them houses but just not in my neighborhood put them way out somewhere far away right but then and then the people in the other neighborhood say not in my neighborhood and then not you end up just uh, these people have to be somewhere you can't you know you can't make they, them right they need treatment most of them need treatment they need drug and mental treatment yeah. And that right. is what they need. And it's inhumane for us to be letting them just wallow on the street. We wouldn't let people with Alzheimer's wander around to fend for themselves. Yet we do that to a lot of people in yeah, similar right. mental and situations. I think that's, and I think that's the key point. And too much of this debate, I think, focuses on what, the, what people, in the, but people who are already housed in the neighborhood feel about how their neighborhood is, is going mm -hmm. to look. It's, a very, it's, it's aesthetic in, in, mm -hmm. a lot, in some disturbing ways. Rather than coming from the perspective of, if if you're the person on that beach, like now, except for uh, you know your 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 old uh, housemate who or not housemate but <laughs> yeah, apartment mate who decided my, on their own, but like yeah. your shower mate, ninety nine percent of folks are are looking for housing. Like they want to live indoors. They they want a nice place. Well, but we, but we I, haven't I set up know. a system that it, it, that makes it affordable and realistic. I, I would say, I mean, there are definitely groups. I would say there is definitely a percentage of the people out there who are choosing to live this sort of nomadic lifestyle. And they're not, uh, they, yeah, they do some drugs and stuff, but they're not, I mean, they could go and change their lives. There is a faction of that out there, but that's not the majority. The vast majority are mentally unwell for whatever reason, whether it be actual mental psychosis or drug-induced psychosis. They're mentally ill and they actually don't even... I don't even know if they know where they are half the time. So I don't know if they're even thinking well, about. I think, and I think I some of those people, if they were being treated and they were for their illness, they would want to be in a house. But of because they're, you know spiraling so out of control and they're addicted to things, so they know they can't be in a situation where they live in a home because they're addicted and they can, you can't you know right. there are rules and a lot of a, yes. so they're. The only you can't you couldn't just throw a house at them necessarily. They wouldn't show. They would screw it. Right. I, I've seen this. I've lived in apartment buildings where they give up some of the units at no cost to homeless people, and, and it, yeah. inevitably within a few weeks or even shorter, they're out on the street again because they can't abide because they're too addicted and mentally ill to abide by the the most common kind of restriction. You know you, that you can't blare loud music at four a.m. That you can't you know sexually assault other guests, because like, they're so screwed up and they need so much other help. But if they had that, a, a larger percentage would, uh, would is not just, the, there is a bohemian lifestyle 
uh, element to it. Probably more so in California, where it's it's yeah, where it's more warm and people the, are attracted yeah. to it. And yeah, yeah. There's a faction of that, but the rest really do need treatment, and they we need, need to help. be setting up. I think treatment centers yeah. for them is really where we need to be focusing. Yeah. But. All right. Well, that does it for us today. We it was so great having the whole uh, nice the whole team back Again. together. I know. <laughs> I know uh, some of, some of our viewers like uh, like the three of us. Think it's a good show. So yes. tomorrow on Rising, journalist Matt Taibbi will join us to discuss what's coming out of the January six hearings. And also, friend of the show Katie Halper will be my co-host for the day uh, while Brianna's still out. So that should be exciting. We're looking forward to that. Thanks so much, Ryan, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, be sure to yeah. like, share, and subscribe. And uh, check out the podcast. Got to do that, too. So, all right, guys. And check out the, what, is. what is it on Plex, where you can get uh, our, oh, our right. content as well. We've got, uh, got that, that going for people who like to check that. I'm still, I haven't figured it out yet. I'm going to figure out later this week how to watch the show on Plex. And, uh, then I'll report back. Excellent. Thank you. All Appreciate right. that. Homework assignment. All right. <laughs> see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye. See you.